Today on Clear Approach, we talk about Mayo Clinic's new aerospace medicine podcast. We'll review some of the latest information on COVID from the FAA. We'll discuss a problem down below that can cause problems up above, otherwise known as hernias. And finally, I'll share a personal story about anxiety, medications, and flying. All this and more coming up on the new Mayo Clinic Clear Approach Podcast, your home for aerospace medicine that matters. All right, well, welcome everybody again to the first Mayo Clinic Clear Approach Podcast. Since this is our first get-together, I think it's probably a good idea to start with a few mandatory introductory topics, mainly who the heck I am and why we decided to have an aerospace medicine podcast. So first things first, my name is Dr. Greg Vanishkashorn. Now, that sounds like a mouthful. It's because it certainly is. I can tell you about some traumatizing preschool experiences. Fortunately, in the spirit of safety, most of my colleagues and patients just call me Dr. Van. I am a physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I practice both aerospace and occupational medicine. If you've never heard of this specialty, you're in good company. My mom still thinks that I am an occupational therapist, which I'm not. Believe it or not, my specialty is entirely focused on helping folks with medical conditions that affect their function both at work and at home. And in my case, I particularly help pilots. I am also a senior aviation medical examiner for the FAA, and I've been doing FAA exams for about six years, which is just long enough that nothing really surprises me anymore when it comes to health and flying. And because I really like collecting as many student loans as possible, I am also a board-certified family physician. Outside of that, I'm working on my own private pilot certification, and I currently fly in Archer 3 out of KRST in Rochester. All right. Now that you know who I am, let's get to the other big question. Why did Mayo Clinic decide to do something so specific as an aerospace medicine podcast? Well, to understand that reason, we have to go back to our existing Clear Approach service for pilots. If you've never heard of the program, Clear Approach is an online service where pilots can send in medical questions to the medical examiners at the Mayo Clinic. We've had the program now for a few years, and lately we've noticed a few interesting trends. First, pilots seem to have a lot of similar questions. Second, pilots often feel alone when it comes to their medical issues, and they're not quite sure who to turn to. And finally, from the number of messages we're getting, it's clear that there are a lot of pilots with questions out there. And this, of course, is really understandable when we consider the medical certification process for the FAA, which makes filing your taxes look like a walk in the park. At least the IRS doesn't care about your prostate size. So with that, we decided to start this podcast to help pilots learn more about the medical conditions that can affect flying and about the medical certification process. With each episode, we plan on sharing the latest in aerospace medicine news. We'll do a brief review of some of the most common medical conditions pilots worry about, And what I'm really excited about, we are planning on having a few pilots share their medical stories in future shows. Now, hopefully at this point, you are not asleep. And if you are, you might need a sleep study. If you are still awake, I hope you enjoy this show and future shows. It will be fun to have you along for the flight. So let's get to it.
Next up, the news. Well, if there's one thing that's dominated the news lately in regards to medicine, it has to be COVID-19. The pandemic has changed almost every aspect of life, and this includes medical certification for pilots. With all of the social distancing required during the early stages of the pandemic, the FAA realized it was going to be pretty difficult for aviators to be able to renew their medical certificates on time. To help with this, on April 29th, the FAA issued a special federal air regulation number 118. And this provided a rolling three-month deadline extension for medical certificates that expired between March 2020 and April 2020. Later, in July, this extension was expanded to include medical certificates expiring between July 2020 and September 2020. In addition, the FAA also provided some clarification regarding this expansion in a notice to aviation medical examiners dated July 7th. The agency reminded examiners that the extension is indeed a rolling 90-day extension. So, for example, if your certificate expires on August 1st, you are in what is called a non-enforcement status until November 1st. If your certificate expired April 30th, you were in a non-enforcement status until July 31st. If that's you, you might want to make an appointment with your aviation medical examiner as soon as possible. And most recently, the FAA has provided some guidance on pilots who have been infected by COVID. Every day we are learning more and more about COVID, and there are now concerns that there can be long-term effects from the coronavirus infection. Because of this, the FAA is now asking for any relevant records for any airmen that have been hospitalized with COVID. So if you have been in the hospital because of coronavirus, the FAA expects you to tell your aviation medical examiner. In addition, records from your treatment, including imaging results and similar, will need to be reviewed by the FAA. In addition, the FAA is going to want records also for any airman that an aviation medical examiner feels has a worrisome ongoing health issue related to a COVID infection, whether or not you were in the hospital. I, for one, can't wait until the COVID pandemic is agent history. I know that many of you feel the same way, but unfortunately, it looks like it's here to stay for a while, and so are the changes. Let's move on to our first medical topic, hernias. Now, you're probably wondering why, of all things that I could start with on our first podcast, why I would choose hernias. Well, here at the Mayo Clinic, we perform a very thorough examination for our pilots. And that examination includes a hernia exam. Now, as I tell my pilots, this is the turn your head and cough exam, not the bend over the table and sing Moon River exam. And I've seen enough puzzled expressions from pilots not just my CFI, by the way, to realize that not many folks out there understand why checking a hernia would be important to flying. So here we go. First of all, what is a hernia? A hernia is a protrusion, bulge, or projection of an organ or part of an organ through the body wall that normally contains it. Now that's a pretty textbook definition, but how I really like to think of hernias is it's like one of those stress balls. You know, one of those ones that you can put into your hand and squeeze and everything protrudes out between your fingers. Those protrusions are the hernias. Now, there can be a whole lot of different hernias. You can have a hernia through your belly button. You can have a hernia at the top of your stomach. You can get a hernia from a surgical incision site. Pretty much anything that can bulge can have a hernia. 
However, the ones that we're most concerned about and the ones that we most frequently check on are the groin hernias. Now, there can be three different types of groin hernias, uh, direct, indirect, and femoral, depending on where the hernia starts. But for the purposes of this podcast, know that they all occur at the inguinal ligament, and that's that crease where the leg meets the groin. Symptoms from a hernia are usually pretty minimal. Some patients will notice an occasional bulging in the groin area, and this can be associated with pain or be pain-free. Other patients will only notice a dull ache or heaviness in the groin without any bulging. This pain and bulging tends to get worse with anything that increases the pressure in the abdomen, such as lifting, straining, or prolonged standing. However, in a few unlucky individuals, hernias can become extremely painful and even be life-threatening. Remember my bulging stress ball analogy? Usually, if you stop squeezing the ball, the bulging stops too. But imagine if that bulging was stuck between your fingers and couldn't go back in. Well, the same thing can happen for hernias. And if it happens to be a groin hernia, the thing that's stuck outside is your intestine. If the intestine does become stuck, we call this an incarceration. If the stuck herniated intestine becomes squeezed so much that it can't receive blood flow, this is called strangulation. And this in turn leads to tissue necrosis, even bowel perforation, and rapidly evolving pain and incapacitation. Otherwise, this is not something that you want to have happen on a transoceanic flight, and hence, we've been asking pilots to drop their shorts for years. Statistics-wise, direct and indirect hernias are more common than femoral hernias, with indirect being the most common. However, femoral hernias more frequently become incarcerated and or strangulated. Overall, hernias are present in about 5-10% to of the U.S. population, and yes, women can get hernias too, but they are less likely to have them overall. However, because of the anatomy difference, the turn-your-head-and-cough examination doesn't work for women, and women will typically need some form of imaging to diagnose a hernia, like an ultrasound. Now, what if you have a hernia? What can we do about it? Well, there are two main options. One option would be to wait and see what happens. Uh, This used to be the preference, but the trend now is to fix things before a problem arises. The definitive treatment for hernias is a surgical repair, And a hernia repair is one of the most common surgeries performed in the world. In reality, if we discover a hernia in a pilot we are looking at, we would note on the FAA documentation the presence of this hernia, document, hopefully, the lack of any kind of incarceration or strangulation signs or symptoms, and then send that pilot uh, to a general surgeon for evaluation and definitive treatment. Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering... Has there been any documented adverse events or accidents due to a pilot with an inguinal hernia? Well, we were wondering the same thing here at the Mayo Clinic. And to help answer this question, my colleagues and I poured through the NTSB reports and NASA's aviation safety reporting system to see if we could find anything. And after two weeks of searching, I am surprised to say that no, we have not found any cases of an adverse event or accident due to an inguinal hernia. There definitely have been some events related to hiatal hernias, which involves a stomach, but that's about it. There are two ways to look at this kind of information. One is that inguinal hernias aren't really a big deal after all, or all that turning your head and coughing really is keeping our skies safe. One final note, do you know why we ask you to turn your head when you cough? It's because we don't want you to cough on us.
All right, and now for what I hope will be the most interesting part of this podcast. It's story time. Now, I've hung around with enough pilots to know already that we love our stories. And it's my hope that in future episodes, we can have a few guest pilots on here uh, share their uh, adventures in medicine and flying. Of course, I do realize that it is difficult for folks to often open up about their health. So to be fair, I figured we would start with a pilot that I think that I know best. Me. Maybe you can tell from this podcast already, but believe it or not, I am also a pilot with a medical problem. And that problem is anxiety. Now, I am passionate about treating mental health and removing the stigma associated with mental health conditions. So if my divulging to you of my condition makes you feel uncomfortable, I appreciate that and I understand, but know that I have nothing to hide and I am comfortable sharing. Now, for most of my adult life, I have had some problems with mild anxiety. And believe it or not, this shows up most often with public speaking. I'm trying to manage the stress of having four young children screaming around my house. To help my symptoms, I use a medicine called sertraline. Sertraline, otherwise known as Zoloft, is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or something called an SSRI for short. The medicine has been around for a while, and it's similar to some of the other more common uh, anti-anxiety, anti-depression medications out there, like Prozac. Now, in everyday life, someone using sertraline is not really a big deal. However, in the eyes of the FAA, it is taken very, very seriously. In fact, the FAA currently only allows pilots to use four SSRIs while flying, and those are fluoxetine, sertraline, escitalopram, and citalopram. It is important to know that there are a lot of other good medications that can be used to treat depression and anxiety that are not associated with any sedating effects. That would be medications like uh, Effexor or Welbutrin. However, these are still not accepted by the FAA currently. Now, I've wanted to earn my pilot's license ever since I can remember it was possible to fly. And despite my history, I was determined to jump through whatever hurdles I needed to in order to obtain my medical certificate. And let me tell you, there are a lot of hurdles. While the FAA allows pilots to use sertraline, that does not mean it was easy to get a medical certificate. Let's walk through some of my real-world steps to see how this process goes. The first step in my journey was to get a hold of my medical records. Before you can be certified to fly while using an SSRI, you must have used the medication for at least six months. In addition, you have to have good documentation from the provider that prescribes you the medicine that you're doing well on it and that there are no concerning side effects. So I reached out to my current doctor's office and got as many records as I could. Of course, though, that is not enough for the FAA. When it comes to sertraline and anxiety and depression, the FAA pretty much wants records from your entire medical life. And in my case, since I had been on the medication for almost two decades now, I pretty much had to go back 20 years to try to find records. And yes, this wasn't always feasible. Some clinics had closed, and therefore some records weren't available. And yes, the FAA does realize this happens. They just want you to get as many records as possible. All in all, it took about one month to get everything squared away. Once I had received the records, I made a copy and sent them to the FAA for review, as well as some information releases that would allow them to send those records to interested examiners. Next, I began following the guidelines in the FAA SSRI Initial Certification Sheet. You can find this by consulting my colleague, Dr. Google. 
The form nicely lays out all the steps you need to undergo certification while being treated for anxiety and depression. Unsurprisingly, it is a lengthy document, but don't let that get you down. I just focused on doing one step at a time. Per this sheet, the next step was to write a letter describing my history and situation. And even though I had been on the medicines for, again, two decades almost, my history was fairly benign, fortunately. And I was able to summarize the details about a page and a half. The next step was to meet with a HIMSS AME. If you're not familiar with the phrase, HIMSS stands for a Human Intervention Motivation Study. That is a really awkward term, but all you need to know is that a HIMSS AME is an aviation medical examiner that has received special training to help pilots with both substance abuse issues and mental health issues. Because of the extra training required, you can imagine that it's kind of difficult to find HIMSS AMEs. Fortunately, there is a list on the FAA website. Prior to my visit with the AME, I sent in all my records to them, at least the copies of that. During the visit itself, we talked about my treatment history and current situation. After that, the AME sent a report to the FAA recommending me for a special issuance and agreeing to be my aviation medical examiner. Now, know that this is different than an aviation medical examination that occurs later in the process. Next up, it was time to meet with a HIMSS aviation medical examiner psychiatrist. As you can imagine, with all of those titles, these folks are even rarer. But again, there is a list. Similar to my previous AME evaluation, I sent my records to the psychiatrist before my interview. The interview itself was very benign. There was no bright lights shining in my face. No one asked me about my mom. We just talked about my history, stressors, and my coping mechanisms. There were a few informal tests of my concentration, memory, and cognition ability, but that only lasted a few minutes. I did get to leave without a straitjacket on, so I think things went pretty well overall. Next, I took the optional path and obtained a letter from my CFI. Now, not knowing how long this process was going to take, I started my flight lessons before I get my medical certificate. And yes, you can do that. You just can't solo until you have your medical. Since my flight instructor was perhaps the best person to comment on my in-flight performance, I thought it was prudent to get a letter from him. After he muttered something along the lines of, over my dead body, he agreed to give me a letter. Again, this is optional for someone like me who is flying for fun. If you are a first-class pilot who has been employed by an air carrier in the last two years, this kind of report is mandatory. Okay, after that came the most frankly intimidating part of this journey, the neuropsychological evaluation. This evaluation was with a psychologist. Like my visit with a psychiatrist beforehand, this person had a copy of my records, and we spent some time talking about my history. Once that was done, it was time for the famous or infamous COG screen. The COG screen is a computerized examination that tests your ability to basically think and make judgments under time constraints and pressure. A more precise description can be found on the COG screen website, which you can find through any web search. Of course, I can't really get into the details of what's on the examination, but I do want to share two things with you. First, despite what you may have heard, the test is not easy. It is designed so that you will eventually have difficulties completing it. Second, it was not cheap and it was not covered by my insurance. After that, the next step was to return to my HIMSS Aviation Medical Examiner for the formal exam. A repeat history was taken and a thorough examination was performed, including the hernia examination, and my medical certificate was deferred to review by the FAA. 
And that brings me to the final and truly most difficult part of the process, the waiting game. After submitting my file, it took the FAA roughly six months to issue my special issuance. Unfortunately, it looks like this kind of time frame is here to stay for a while. The COVID pandemic has certainly not made things any easier for the FAA staff. Right now, the latest that I've heard, the FAA is currently estimating approximately a 6-12 to 12 month waiting period for pilots who have similar histories as me. This is something you definitely want to take into account before starting the medical certification process. So this subject of mental health conditions and SSRIs comes up quite a bit in our Clear Approach service. And I really hope my story helps you understand that achieving a medical certificate in this kind of situation is both possible but not easy. And to wrap things up, I want to leave you with a few more tips for success when it comes to medical certification with a mental health history. First, remember that every interaction you have with your AME and their staff is part of the evaluation process. Being courteous and professional with your AME, but then screaming and cursing at the other staff members can be taken as a sign of impulse control issues or a compromising personality behavior. Second, be truthful to your examiners in the FEA. One of the worst things you can do is attempt to lie or cover something up. Lying and flying don't go well together. Third, mentally and physically prepare for your cog screen. This means resting well the night before and making sure that you have the appointment location and time right. The FAA won't think you can fly through Class B airspace if you can't use GPS to drive across town. In my case, I avoided any alcohol for a few days prior to the test. I exercised regularly. And the night before, I stayed in a hotel near my test location so I could sleep undisturbed and avoid an early morning 1.5-hour drive. Fourth, don't forget to be your own advocate. The FAA is a big place with lots of people and processes. Sometimes things can get lost in the shuffle. And while I wouldn't recommend barraging the FAA with phone calls and letters, periodically checking in with your regional flight surgeon office or the AMCD office is worthwhile. Finally, and most importantly, I would say, be patient. This is going to take a while. Well, that's it for our first podcast. It was fun to write, and I hope you had as much fun listening to it. If you have any questions or feedback about the podcast, we appreciate your thoughts, and feel free to send them my way via the links in the podcast description. If you have any personal questions about your medical situation and medical certification, please visit our Clear Approach website, which can be found on the Mayo Clinic website at mayoclinic.org. And finally, if you have a medical story that you would like to share with our listeners, I'd love to hear what you have in mind. Just give me another message through the links in the podcast description. Until next time, this is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, wishing you good flying and even better health. <laughs>